0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Day after day, we're seeing powerful pictures of young Iranians, no different to you, risking their lives for freedom. Students burning their headscarves. They're chanting women, life, freedom, and they're demanding revolution. Will it work? Hey, it's Dave Marchese with you for the Hack Podcast. In a bit, you're going to hear from someone there in Iran. She'll tell you what it's like for young women right now. This woman's taking a big risk speaking out, but she wants you to know what she hopes comes out of this global uprising. First, though. Hack. It feels
0: better when there's
2: no condom on. If I've got no reason to wear a condom, then I don't really
0: see the problem. On Triple J.
1: You know, we know consent is a huge issue for you, and thankfully there's been a lot more talk about it over the last couple of years. There've also been changes to laws to bring them in line with what we expect. And that's great, we all love steps forward, but we've still got a long way to go, especially when it comes to the issue of stealthing. In a bit, we're gonna speak to Chanel Contos. You know her, she's been leading the call for legal change around consent. But first, here's Shalala Medora to talk us through where we're at with criminalising stealthing.
3: OK, before we get into this properly, we need to define what stealthing actually is. Stealthing occurs when an individual removes a condom during sex without the other person's knowledge or consent. Dr Brianna Chesser is a criminal lawyer, forensic psychologist and lecturer at RMIT University in Melbourne. In other words, she's a bit of an expert on stealthing. Yes, so it can include agreeing to condom use and then not using it or taking it off deliberately. Dr Chessa teamed up with the Australia Institute to find out what people knew about stealthing. They surveyed a thousand people from around the country to get a snapshot. Around 65% of Australians, about two in three, said that they weren't familiar with the term stealthing. But young people aged 18 to 29 were the most familiar with it. Around three out of five people in that age group said they know what stealthing means. Young people were also the most likely to think that stealthing is a crime where they live. 60% of them have the belief that stealthing's already criminalised and it does step down by age group. For example, only 5% of people aged over 60 believe that stealthing is criminalised where they live. So is it? In in most states in Australia at the moment, it's either criminalised or on its way to being criminalised. Let's take a little tour of the country, shall we? Last year, the ACT became the first place in Australia to criminalise stealthing. Tasmania followed quickly afterwards. New South Wales changed its consent laws and specifically listed stealthing as an example of an act that negates or removes consent. They've amended their definition of consent to specifically provide that a person doesn't freely agree if the person communicates to another that the condom must be used and the other doesn't use, tampers with or removes the condom. Victoria said it's going to bring in similar laws to New South Wales. Stealthing laws are currently being debated in Queensland. South Australia is introducing a bill on it and WA is reviewing its laws, which just leaves the top end. Northern Territory is the only jurisdiction at the moment that hasn't announced any possible changes to include stealthing in their legislation.
1: Hack on Triple J. Shalala Madora with that update. And remember, if this has raised anything for you, there's always help available. You can call 1-800-RESPECT or Lifeline is on 13 11 14. I want to explore this issue more and with us now is Chanel Contos. You'll remember her as the woman who launched a national campaign around consent. Chanel's now the director of the Australia Institute's Centre for Sex and Gender Equality and she's with us now. Chanel Contos, welcome back to Hack.
0: Hi Dave, so great to be here again.
1: Look, we've just heard the state of laws targeting stealthing around the country. You guys have done a lot of research into this Some jurisdictions are a lot further ahead than others. Why is it important that we have nationally consistent laws?
0: Well, firstly, one of the findings of the report by Dr. Brianna Chasser and Sienna Parrott from the Australian Institute is that 81% of Australians want this criminalised. Um, So there is public demand for this. And it's also important that we have consistent laws across the country because we are one country and people travel between states and territories all the time and it just seems quite unfair to me that a high school student in the ACT can grow up being told that stealthing is a crime and then they can go on schoolies to Queensland and this crime can be committed against them and then suddenly they're left knowing that there is this grey area um, in the criminal system there.
1: And that's the thing when you when you paint it like that and show how easy it is people move around all the time right and so there's a lot of room for confusion here and the research found that you know people don't know often what the laws are where they are where they live do we know do we have any idea how much stealthing is happening like is there more and more data that's coming out on this in recent years
0: look it's really hard to figure that out firstly one of the findings of the report was that over half of Australians don't even know if stealthing is a crime in their state or territories. So this may not be something that they even pay attention to. And then secondly, the nature of the crime itself is something that is often done without the victim's knowledge. Um, so many people may be victims of stealthing without even being aware of it. The only research in Australia that we do have into this topic was done from a sexual health clinic in Melbourne, and it was on a small sample size of only about 2,000 people who attended a sexual health clinic. Um, but that study was quite jarring finding that one in three women and one in five men who have sex with men had experienced stealthing
1: and yeah i was reading in the report some research that's been done previously has found only one percent of people reported stealthing to police why is that
0: i mean i'm to be honest i'm surprised it's that high um given how often it happens i think the thing is, we already know all the barriers that are faced to victims of sexual violence in our society in terms of reporting, um, you know, victim blaming, disbelief, all of these sort of things. Um, and, you know, the trauma that that involves going forth in that way. But stealthing is a particularly intricate crime and a specific form of sexual violence in that by definition you have to have consented to having sex with the person in order for them to then non-consensually remove the condom which means that you're almost always going to have positive feelings towards this person who has committed this crime to you which makes all of those barriers to reporting and you know all of those factors around belief and validation and all those things extremely um extremely higher
1: People have got questions about this. We've got a message in from Joel in Cheltenham in Victoria. He says, so if the condom breaks or rolls off without the guy's knowledge, is that considered stealthing?
0: No, it's not because it's about um, it's about consent and it's about intention. Um, so a condom accidentally breaking, which, you know, we know can happen sometimes, um, rarely, but sometimes is not an act of stealthing. OK, you're listening to
1: Hackam. Dave Marchese, I'm speaking to Chanel Contos about new research into stealthing, really highlighting the difference in laws around the country dealing with this issue. Was there anything, Chanel, in this research that surprised you?
0: Um, I was very happy with the fact that so many Australians were keen to have this legislation passed through. I mean, 81%, that's, you know, a large majority, which is something that as Australians we can rarely agree on one thing. Um so yeah that was um that was surprising but I think the other main takeaway from this report is that yes we need legislation and we need consistent messaging and laws around that but another key factor in this is education because in this case we're using legislation to set community standards because so often this crime can be committed um you know out of entitlement and not kind of intentional malice like I don't think many people wake up in the morning and think I'm going to go and steal someone today it happens usually in the moment and the circumstances that are happening so awareness that this is a crime and something that should not be done I think can counteract that male sexual entitlement.
1: And we know big changes to the curriculum around consent education are coming into force next year what kind of impact do you reckon that's going to have long term?
0: So the really exciting thing about the curriculum (laughs) and stealthing laws is that it is part of the new national curriculum that um, in those later high school years, students learn about the laws around sexual assault in their state or territory. Um, which means that as jurisdictions around Australia criminalise stealthing, it will automatically be embedded in the Australian curriculum for it to be taught as um, as something in the classroom. So I do hope that that has a massive impact. Of course, we have so much more to do, but that was a great win that I know that lots of hack listeners were a part of. So thank you. Thank you, everyone, for that.
1: You know, Chanel, younger Australians, it seems, are the ones leading this change. And as Shalila mentioned in her story earlier, most young people know what stealthing is, which is a good thing. How big is the challenge to convince the rest of the country, though? Because there's not a lot of knowledge when you look at Australia more broadly, right?
0: yeah the report found that only fifteen percent of Australians know what stealthing is, and that is definitely um yeah definitely problematic and that means that whilst it's great that in some states um, and territories we're going to have it come through the school system and you know while it's great we're having conversations about it and things like this, it is important for us to educate others around um, around this because a lack of education is a massive gap because yeah a key takeaway for me was only fifteen percent of Australians know what stealthing is, but once told what it was, 81% agree that it should be a crime nationally. In all of the
1: work that you've been doing over the past couple of years, Chanel, is it something that comes up consistently with you from young people, young women and young guys as well?
0: Yes, it's definitely... I think it is definitely a crime that is um, more... Often perpetrated by um, younger younger people, it is definitely something that's you know been reported to me far and wide. Um, uh, we've had amazing survivors of stealthing um, speak to policymakers around our country about their experiences with it and the impact that's had um, on them, and how important education and awareness around this and criminalisation is in this space. So. Yeah, we just need to keep talking. I mean, anyone listening to this who's either just learned what stealthing is or knew what it was before, I really encourage you to go out and have a conversation with someone about it, whether they're older or your age.
1: And I guess in your work as an advocate, you meet with a lot of leaders, politicians, like people at the highest levels of government. When you've talked to them about these issues, does it feel like they get it? because that's kind of the important thing right it's like you know we can have these discussions and like younger australians can be on board and go yes we want action but if those in the with power don't really understand how important it is that's going to be a barrier
0: yes i it definitely <laughs> could be a barrier but very fortunately so far um we've had really great reception from kind of the policymakers we've met in this space um so at the australian institute um with sienna and i created a roundtable event where we had those survivors i mentioned speaking to some of our country's highest policymakers we had representation from every single jurisdiction in australia whether that was ag serato ag or someone on behalf of them um and just yesterday we actually met with mark Dreyfus, who's the federal attorney general on this um topic and he gave us commitment to keep this on the national agenda um, going forward so yeah it is something that is easy for old people to potentially switch off about but I think the thing is I I mean there's topics that are only kind of applicable to our generations and younger like I don't know social media even things like pornography and stuff like that but I think condoms make sense like condoms make sense to old people that's something that has existed the whole time and I think it's quite simple for them to understand why the removal of that without consent could be such an intrusive act and all of the implications of that that go beyond psychological trauma.
1: Yeah, you'd think there'd be no generational divide there. Look, there's going to be so many people that are happy to hear that you're working on this and that you are speaking with people in power about the changes that we need to be seeing across the country. The Australia Institute's Director of the Centre for Sex and Gender Equality, Chanel Contos, thanks for joining us on HACC.
0: Thank you so much, Dave.
1: And we've got some messages coming through. Someone says, Ollie from NAM says Chanel's such an articulate advocate for these issues. Well spoken, has the facts. She's balanced, part of a generation of tenacious young women change making queen. Somebody else also backing Ollie up, saying Chanel's an absolute legend. And somebody else talking about still things, saying pretty sure consent is a good reason. Also SDIs and unwanted pregnancy
3: as well. Hack. I'm every day crying for the people in Iran. Because they need just freedom. They need
1: human rights. On Triple J. You know, when protests started kicking off in Iran last month, we couldn't have imagined just how big they would become. The death of 22-year-old Masa Amini, who was arrested by what's called the Morality Police for supposedly wearing an improper hijab, has turned into a full-scale attempt to bring down a brutal and oppressive regime every day. Men, women uni students, school students are risking their lives, taking to the streets and demanding change. Brave women are publicly burning their hijabs, condemning the country's leaders. And these protests have spread around the world with young people standing in solidarity, even here in Australia. Look, it's hard to know the full scale of what's happening in Iran because journalists covering it are being arrested. It's so dangerous for people to speak out publicly. There are severe consequences in Iran, but we have spoken with the young person there. I can't tell you her name. I can't tell you where she is. We've had to change her voice, actually, to protect her identity. This woman is risking a lot, but she wants to tell you what's happening in Iran, why you should care about it, and her hopes for the future. I started the interview by asking if there was anything that she could tell us about herself.
4: I try to be anonymous because the government is really... um secured and uh, you know it's, they're checking and controlling everywhere so I'm not uh, saying my <laughs> my details just telling you I'm holding uh, my master in science I'm 27 uh, since I was young I had a lot of plans and dreams in my life in my head but never been able to pursue them because the government kept stopping me all the time with my decisions for my life and goals. What is life in Iran like for young women? Since 1979, the Islamic regime uh, took power and uh, I mean with lying and fooling people by saying everything will be free, free gas, free water, free life, everything will be free for you. We want, uh, no one will be poor, people will have money, people will have power. People were fooled by Khomeini, the leader of Islamic regime in 1979. So after 1979, the universities, schools, everywhere were um, gender segregated. Uh, and uh, people, they were trying to block people from the world. Uh, they were trying to suppress Iranian women. You know, Iranian women, 70% of Iranian women are studying in engineering, science, and 60% of them are uh, having uh, graduated or having master's degree. So, But they're still uh, trying to oppress Iranian women. We've been seeing the pictures out of
1: these protests across the world, but especially in Iran. They look huge. How big are they?
4: At first, it started with a feminism uh, movement, and now it turned to a big revolution. Iranian people are not fighting for, uh, actually, for hijab or for head covering. Uh, they're fed up everything about the government. They're fed up with killing, torturing people, with corruption, big corruption, and embezzlement of government. Uh, they they're trying. They're they're just sick of uh, poverty. Uh, the issue with this government is that they don't accept any protest, any any peaceful protest, like. Even if some people go randomly to the street together uh, and say nothing, because we had some silence uh, uh, protests uh, years ago, but uh, they assault people. They attacked and uh, kicked them and uh, detained them. So you have no choice, no rights, nothing, and just have to uh, follow and obey, uh, obey the dictatorship. I'm wondering if people in Iran
1: know exactly what's happening. Like, is there a lot of information being censored? Do everyday people know what's happening around the world, the flow-on effect of all these protests?
4: Every time such a thing happening, uh, the government uh, block the internet and um, they just uh, censor everything, they block the internet and... Uh, I have to, and all the all the websites, everything which is international, uh, which is not governmental inside Iran, I have to use VPN, which is illegal. And I have to find someone trusted from black market to give me a proper uh, VPN. And also even VPN keeps disconnecting. So it's really difficult to have connection with the world. Now I'm talking to you, I'm using VPN. And uh, inside governmental media shows me and my friends and my sisters as an enemy that are funded by terrorism and Israel and the U.S. But we are not from anywhere. We are just normal people, normal Iranian citizens that got fed up with dictatorship. We want to have our own rights and we are fighting uh, for our basic rights. Not for, like, fighting for, I don't know, uh, anything else, but we are fighting for basic rights, to have a choice.
1: You're listening to Hack. I'm Dave Marchese. I'm speaking with a young person in Iran. I can't tell you who it is. I can't tell you where they are because that's how dangerous the situation is there with huge protests and calls for revolution. Do you think these protests are going to lead to change? for women in Iran and for Iranians generally?
4: So uh, people here, girls and guys, women, men, even elderly people, they really want to have peace. If you see how many Iranians, like more than 50,000, nearly uh, 100,000 Iranians were in Vancouver in uh, Toronto, in Los Angeles, and Francisco, Washington, New York, even in Sydney and Melbourne too, uh, Iranians are standing against dictatorship, and we want uh, we want them out. Really, we just want a normal life. We just want to live in a peaceful, democratic, liberal country, like any other country, like Australia. Why not? We Iranian people, most of them are not religious. The, the government just pushed them to believe in one God, to believe in one specific rule and they dictating 80, uh, 84 million people to, to follow one special rule, which is not following by other countries. And if someone wants to choose another lifestyle, which is which sound normal for another country, they uh, hang. They execute people easily, and it's really easy for them because they believe that they will go to heaven if they kill protesters. What's your biggest fear? My biggest fear is that they will they will use their own deadliest weapon, like such a ah uh, such a missiles, or even worse to their own people because they did such a thing to Syria before they said they were claiming they were ISIS members but un- unfortunately it wasn't it turned out to be a big lie they weren't ISIS members they were attacking normal Syrian citizens that were protesting against their corrupted government so they easily labeling people as terrorists and
1: killing them There are a lot of other young people around the world in Australia listening to this right now. What's your message to them?
4: So I really like the the rest of the world to hear us and know that being informed that Iranian people are apart from their own government. These are not our elected people. These are not our choice. And we are 84 million Iranians standing against one of the biggest dangerous organisations, which are... Which they are armed and we are unarmed. So that would be a big help if we get support from other countries. Media uh, pay more attention about that because uh, when another country that didn't attack us, it doesn't mean that we are at peace. We are uh, surrounded by the enemies inside Iran. Hack on Triple
3: J
1: a young iranian there explaining what it's like living there what many in iran are feeling and why they're protesting we've got some messages coming through on the text line someone says it's so sad what's happening in iran i really hope change comes from this and there are a lot of people joining in solidarity at demonstrations protests around the world in australia as well i want to zoom out a bit now find out more about what's happening from a global perspective I've got with me Tony Walker, a former foreign correspondent in the Middle East, everywhere. He's been everywhere. He's an adjunct professor at La Trobe Uni. Tony, thanks so much for joining us on Hack.
2: That's a pleasure, Dave. And I have to say, uh, listening uh, to that young lady you were just interviewing, uh, I'm not sure if that was a pre-record or it was live to air, but uh, it... It's it's very moving, I have to say, uh, listening to these brave young women and girls uh, uh, expressing those points of view in circumstances where they are, you know, you have to say, uh,
1: under under threat. That's right, Tony. I mean, and it, it it takes a lot of courage to be able to speak out like that. And unfortunately, a lot of people aren't able to do it. We've just heard from this young person in Iran saying they're committed to this fight for freedom. These women-led protests are getting bigger and bigger. Do you think, Tony, it's going to change anything in the long run?
2: I would like, uh, Dave, to say so, and I would like to believe so. Uh, However, if we look at the pattern of past protests and demonstrations and rebellions on the streets of Iran, uh, they tend to peter out after a while because the state has the ability uh, to exert maximum force against these demonstrations and... uh, and and is prepared to do so. Uh, So um, while uh, we might hope uh, that these lead to something, uh, I I guess the realistic view is that uh, uh, in time, they'll probably die down until the next wave of protest. Well, the next reason uh, is, is provided uh, for uh,
1: people to rise up against
2: the, uh, this regime.
1: Do you think, though, that there's something a lot different about these protests from those in the past and different about this generation of young people as well? We've got, as we heard, young people over there using VPNs to access the internet mm-hmm. and see all sorts of stuff, learn more about the world. Do you think that's going to change things?
2: We, again, you know, uh, let's hope so. uh, And I think what distinguishes this demonstration from previous ones uh, more so is that it's predominantly young women and girls, not young women, but women and girls who are involved in the demonstrations. And has that happened uh, uh, before? Well, in the uh, Green Revolution or rebellion of 2009, we had a combination of... uh, various demographic groups, and of course, women and girls were involved in that. But this is, uh, in my memory, the first time that we've seen a specific group like uh, women and girls uh, involved in demonstrations. And I think that poses a a significant challenge, obviously, uh, to the regime uh, in the way it uh, responds to these demonstrations.
1: And also, I mean, around the world, someone's messaged in just now saying, I was in New Zealand over the weekend. On Sunday, there was about fifty people protesting in Christchurch. It's a shame anywhere in the world in 2022, there are such gross breaches of human rights. We are seeing big demonstrations all around the world. Do you think that's going to, you know, spur on the West to do something and to respond in a different way? How do you think the West will respond?
2: Well, well, exactly. The do something question is is precisely the right question to ask because what can the West do apart from provide uh, encouragement and support verbally? And, of course, we've seen uh, uh, Elon Musk, for example, uh, activating his Starlink satellite communication systems to enable uh, Iranians to continue to communicate with each other electronically and with the outside world. And it may well be uh, the young lady that you are interviewing just before was using that uh, uh, facility. Uh, but practically speaking, unfortunately, uh, there's not a lot the West can do and the outside world can do by beyond offering sort of moral encouragement to the demonstrators. And then the question becomes, well, this encouragement uh, uh, provides, you know, uh, as I say, encouragement for these demonstrations. But uh, uh, what then? What What if uh, hundreds of these demonstrators get uh, incarcerated or or worse, uh, get uh, get killed? Uh, What does the West do then? I mean, that's the dilemma,
1: obviously. So how do you think this might play out in the months ahead, Tony?
2: Well, that's a good question, Uh, and uh, these demonstrations persist, as we know, and uh, interestingly enough this this week, uh, we had demonstrations uh, in the oil sector, which I found interesting, and that would be concerning uh, the the regime, Uh, but I, I hesitate to say this, but probably things will die down unless Uh, The opposition to the regime uh, spreads, and we're not seeing that at the moment, apart from, as I say, these demonstrations by uh, oil industry workers.
1: Right, well, it's really interesting stuff, and young people in particular are really keen to learn more and more about that. We're seeing so many questions from our audience, from people who want to know what's happening there, who want to know what might happen. Tony Walker from La Trobe University, really appreciate your insights. Thanks for joining us on Hack. That's a pleasure, Dave. That's a pleasure. Bye. We've got some messages coming through from people. Somebody says, people power can work. I really, really hope we can finally see some change in Iran for all of these people. Another person says, sounds so familiar to what's happening in Myanmar, not just to women, but to all who stand up to any Junta. That was from Steve. Hack on Triple J. A big thanks again to all of our guests. That's all we've got time for on the Hack podcast for now.